All right, let's uh, begin this morning in the Gospel of John. I'm sure that most of us have heard that age-old adage that two things in the world can be counted on, and that is death and taxes. I'm not so sure about the taxes part. There are probably some people who pay no taxes because they're so poor, or because they're very sly at evading them. But death is a stark truth that cannot be denied. The human mortality rate is 100%, unless, of course, we uh, make it to the rapture. All people understand that death is physical in nature. Of course, it's the cessation of our material life, and uh, we, we uh, underst- a lot of people don't understand or don't think about the fact that death is more than just physical in nature. It's spiritual separation from God that can become eternal separation from God in hell. The Apostle Paul reminds us of the ultimate cause of death in Romans chapter 5, and he says there, through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. And he goes on to explain, through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. And we know that that one man was Adam, and we all follow in his footsteps, resulting in our own condemnation. Um, There's only one thing, or there is only one thing that can really change all that uh, Paul has stated there the truth that we're all sinners, we're all doomed. The only thing that will change that, Paul continues to mention in that same passage, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. And you know that that one man was, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that one act was his death on the cross. That day was the blackest, the darkest day on earth, but today, of course, marks the brightest day on earth, the gladdest day on earth, because Jesus was raised up from the dead. It's the day that Jesus uh, proved uh, all his sayings and proved the fact that he was God because he could do this. It's because of this act that we're assured that uh, he conquered death for us, and we one day will be raised up. Yes, we may have to experience the valley of the shadow of death, uh, but we also experience the joy of spiritual and eternal life and a bodily resurrection someday. So for the believer in Christ, death really becomes the doorway into heavenly glory. Bishop Jeremy Taylor phrased it well in a poem that he wrote many, many years ago. It goes like this. Death, the old serpent son, Thou hast a sting once, like thy sire, that carried hell and ever-burning fire. But those black days are done. Thy foolish spite buried thy sting in the profound and wide wound of our Savior's side. And now thou hast become a tame and harmless thing, a thing we do not, uh, we, we dare not fear, since we hear that our triumphant God to punish thee to the, for the affront thou didst him on the tree, hast snatched the key of hell out of thy hand, 
and made thee stand a porter at the gate of life, thy mortal enemy. So this morning I want to share with you five important outcomes of Christ's resurrection that have impacted all of us and will continue to do so until we reach glory. But before we look into this, let's ask the Lord's blessing. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful for your word, for the truth it reveals about salvation, how we can escape the penalty of our sin, and how we can lead a pleasing life to you through all that Christ has done for us. We're thankful, Lord, that he left the glories of heaven. He came to this world and he died on a cruel cross, but yet he did not stay dead. He proved all of his uh, claims by raising himself from the dead, and that made it possible for us also to be raised from the dead uh, uh, spiritually, but one day physically as well. So Lord, bless us as we look to these outcomes of your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we come before the Lord in his word, we always come with an underlying Uh, assumption, and that is that the biblical record is true, it's correct, no matter what men may say. So let's take a look at these these five uh, truths about the Lord's resurrection. The first one is this, Christ's resurrection validated all of his claims. It validated all of his claims. And this is an important truth. If the eternal penalty of sin was to be paid, death conquered, and the devil defeated, Christ had to rise from the dead. All of his claims concerning forgiveness of sin and eternal life are dependent on both his death and his subsequent resurrection. So let's consider some of the predictions that were made concerning that truth. And we're going to go to John's Gospel Uh, chapter 2, and this is a prediction that Jesus made at the first Passover he attended uh, during his ministry. And we uh, find this in John 2, and beginning at verse 13, this tells us he came to Jerusalem for a Passover. It goes into uh, uh, his cleansing of the temple, and then the leaders, the Scribes, the Pharisees come to him and they want to know what authority he had to do this. Verse 18. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? In other words, prove that you have the authority to do this. And this is how Jesus answers them in verse 19. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, of course, they didn't really understand what he was talking about because they will go on to complain. It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But Jesus wasn't talking in uh, literal terms like that. Jesus was speaking of his body that it would figuratively be destroyed in death, but it would be raised again. And this is how the disciples understood it after he was raised up, as verse 22 says. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So for what he told the Pharisees to come true, he would have to be raised up from the dead. 
Now, we're not going to turn there, but there are several uh, uh, um, references in the Synoptic Gospels. We actually touched on this last week, where Peter makes a confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You remember that uh, from Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. And then again in in Matthew 16, uh, the same truth is revealed to us. And he began to uh, develop this and teach this about six months before the crucifixion. And the disciples finally came to the realization of who Jesus was. And it's only uh, at this point that the Lord Jesus can begin to inform them of his impending death and his resurrection. He never says something about his death without pointing out his resurrection as well. And we also find this in John's Gospel, chapter 13, in the teaching of Jesus in the Last Supper, from chapter 13 all the way through chapter 16. This all occurs on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. Now, we're not going to go there quite uh, now, but you'll remember that he indicated to them he would be leaving soon. He was going to return to his Father in heaven. They were going to see him again and that he would send to them his Holy Spirit in his absence. And none of those things, again, could happen if he stayed dead in a grave. So let's consider then some statements that he made concerning eternal life. Now, the Lord Jesus, again, especially in in John's Gospel, um, stated that those who put their faith in him would receive the gift of eternal life. If he was not able to raise himself from the dead, then those claims could not be fulfilled. And many of them are associated with the I am passages in John's gospel. For instance, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. We've studied the Uh, two miracles that he did concerning bread, feeding 5,000 people and then 4,000. And we know that this also relates to the spiritual truth that he is the bread of life. And just as physical food uh, gives life to us uh, materially and sustains us, Jesus is the spiritual bread that gives us eternal life and, of course, sustains us uh, through that life. And note how he connects uh, uh, this to being raised at the last day in John's Gospel, chapter 6, and verse uh, 39. He says there, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So if he couldn't raise himself up, he couldn't raise those people up either. So the resurrection is, of course, very important. Then in chapter 10 of John's Gospel, if you want to flip over there, now we're going to be going different places to bear out these truths. But in John's Gospel, chapter 10, we have the Lord Jesus speaking of himself as the good shepherd of the sheep. And uh, if you look at verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Again, we're very aware of that truth. But look on at verse 17. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So once again, Jesus is making a claim here. As the good shepherd, he'll lay down his life for the sheep, but he also has a power that no other human being had, and that's to raise himself up after he dies. In John chapter 11, verse 25, do you remember what Jesus said when he came to the tomb of Lazarus and Mary or Martha came to him? He said, do you believe the resurrection? Uh, She says, yes, but she's thinking of the resurrection at the end. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. So he makes that claim. How could it be true if he wasn't able to be raised up from the dead? And then we all know John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And of course, if you believe on him, uh, that uh, seals up your eternal destiny. So these were words of comfort to the disciples at the Last Supper. And he's teaching them these truths about who he is. If Jesus had not been raised, if he remained dead in the grave, then death conquered him. He did not conquer death. So all these claims would be false if Jesus remained in the grave. He would be a liar, and there'd be no point in trying to follow him today. So the resurrection is a validation of all these claims, indicating that when we put our faith fully in what Christ has done, uh, we have salvation from sin. Now, the second thing I want you to note as an outcome of the resurrection, is that Christ's resurrection becomes the foundation of the gospel message. You can't have a message that says um, uh, Jesus died and that's it. So now you can believe in him because he's dead. No, we have to believe the resurrection as well. And the resurrection of Jesus uh, sets apart the Christian faith from all other belief systems. Christ's death was necessary for atonement to be made for sin and to satisfy God's wrath upon that sin. But the resurrection was necessary to complete the good news, to demonstrate that Jesus has power over death in all its forms, and thus he could free us from death's penalty, its power, and one day its very presence in the life. So these works of Jesus are foundational to the gospel. They become the center of the preaching in the book of Acts and uh, in the epistles. So uh, this is the early record of the church we're going to look at for a moment. And the resurrection becomes central to the preaching of the apostles. We see this pretty clearly in Acts chapter 2. So let's go over there for a couple of minutes. Acts chapter 2, again, hopefully... Very familiar to you this morning. But in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and he explains Christ's resurrection is the underlying reason for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in verses 14 to 21, uh, he states that this is a partial fulfillment of an Old Testament passage in Joel. So how is this possible? Well, he explains it beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, 
as your as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Now, if it stopped there, we might as well close our Bibles and go home. But it goes on to say, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So that is the central truth of the gospel. Jesus died and he was raised up. That's what is going on here, and that's why all this can happen. He further explains by referencing Psalm 16, uh, which he says could not have referred to David in that next little passage there, because David is dead. David hasn't been raised up. And then he goes and he concludes everything down in verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. All right, so... Uh, he's explaining what's going on there, and it's directly connected to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And the preaching goes on. As you go through the whole book of Acts, we'll just turn the page. We'll go to chapter 3. Uh, preaching resulted from the healing of a man who was born blame, uh, lame. Uh, Peter heals him, and then he explains to the people how this was done. It wasn't through their power. It was through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the people chose to condemn, and he's the one who's now been raised up from the dead. And this same truth is going to be preached before the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish court that condemned Jesus and handed him over to Pilate. And we find this over in chapter 4. And verse 8, and we, we again see the, the change in the life of the apostles after they realized Jesus was raised from the dead and they begin teaching these truths. Uh, so this, let's read this to see the change that takes place in them and how bold they are before the council that put Jesus to death. So they're putting themselves in, da- uh, uh, in, in the, the uh, place of danger. Verse 8, chapter 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well? Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now is therefore, nor is therefore salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So there again, they're preaching his death, they're preaching his resurrection before the very people who try to get rid of Jesus in the first place. And the same truths are conveyed if we went to chapter 10 and 11, the story of Cornelius and his house receiving salvation. Uh, They preach the resurrection. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. So this is continuing all the way through the book of Acts. 
Now, the resurrection, of course, was central to the preaching of Paul as time proceeds. Uh, He preached to the Jews in Antioch of Pisidia. And this is early on in his career. I just want to read a couple verses for you from Acts chapter 13. In verse uh, 32, we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. So again, it's central to preaching. You can't preach the death without the resurrection. The two things have to go together, and this is the outcome of the Lord's resurrection, a, a story of hope, a story of encouragement, a story of salvation. This is the center of the gospel. The third outcome I want you to be reminded of is that Christ's resurrection initiated the age of the Holy Spirit. Now, we've seen that as we went to Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit never would have come upon anybody unless Christ had been raised from the dead, went back to heaven, and sent the Spirit as he promised that he would. So that's indicated again by the promises that Jesus uh, uh, made. Back up, if you will, to John's Gospel. And we'll find uh, something that he said on one of the Jewish feast days, John chapter 7, and I'm going to go to verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. Now he's, he's at the temple and he's crying out to probably hundreds of people that have gathered there for this feast time, maybe even thousands. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, if you were standing there listening to him that day, would you have understood what he was saying? Out of your heart are going to flow rivers of living water? So what John does is he interprets that for us and explains what he meant by it. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So John explains that's what Jesus meant by that, that out of our innermost being, out of the inner man, is going to flow the power of the Holy Spirit and those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, at the Passover meal in John 16 and verse 7, What does Jesus say to the disciples? He says to them, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, uh, which is the comforter, the paraclete in the Greek, will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. So the Holy Spirit is a helper, a comforter, one who comes alongside to help us in our walk with God. And he will become an important part, again, in proclaiming the gospel. We won't read the next few verses there, but it says that through him, 
uh, the world is convicted of sin and of righteousness and judgment. So he's an important part in people hearing the word of God and understanding it and coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and then at his ascension in Acts chapter 1, <clears throat> uh, the disciples are commanded to remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit descends. And when that happens, he will empower them to be his witnesses. In verse 5, uh, Jesus is speaking. He says, um, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So as Jesus ascends back into heaven, he promised he will send this Holy Spirit upon his disciples. And then in Acts chapter 2, which we uh, looked at just a, uh, a bit ago, uh, the disciples obey the Lord. They're gathered together and they're praying. They're waiting for the coming of the Spirit of God. And so this describes for us the day of Pentecost when the Spirit arrives. He comes as a, a, in, a, in mighty visible signs, uh, one of which is speaking in tongues or languages that were not known to the people previously. And the purpose of this is so that everyone who gathered uh, in Jerusalem that day, because this, was again, was a feast day, uh, from all over the world, different places, they heard these mighty works of God in their own language from people who didn't even know their language, showing the Spirit was filling them. And as we saw, Peter explained to the crowd how that uh, happened. So the disciples began this incredible ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, within those who receive Christ as Savior. And the Old Testament saints didn't enjoy that privilege. Only a few of them actually experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, and often just on certain occasions, not all the time, like we can. Uh, but we've become regenerated, we're sealed, we're indwelt, and we're energized by the Holy Spirit of God. His ministry in and through us is integral to the joyful Christian life. So through the Holy Spirit, we're given the gift of eternal life that begins the moment we trust in Christ as our Savior. And it's through him that we receive spiritual gifts so we can serve the Lord. It's through him we are empowered to be obedient to God's law, to walk in newness of life, and develop Christ-like behavior. So the Holy Spirit, again, is a result of Christ's resurrection from the dead. The fourth outcome I want to share with you is that Christ's resurrection assures our resurrection. If he is raised up, then he is able to raise others up as well. And again, we rely on certain truths that Christ revealed. Now I'm going to go back to John's Gospel again in chapter 5. <clears throat> and here the Lord Jesus is talking about a future general resurrection of the just and the unjust. 
And we find this in chapter 5, verse 21. I'm going to back up to verse um, 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So judgment, future judgment, has been given to the risen Lord. He judges the just as well as the unjust. He will not judge us for our sins, but for our, uh, our works, our service. But those who haven't come to him are going to be judged for their sins. And we see that this judgment has been granted to him through God the Father. Uh, and this means he has to have uh, the, the ability to raise himself from the dead so he can be the judge of future people. In verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. So there's our faith operating. It's operating in the risen Lord who can give us everlasting life because he has it. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. So that's talking about a future resurrection, a future raising up of the dead who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be judged for their good works, but those who don't know him will be cast into the lake of fire, and Christ will be their judge. Now, uh, again, in John chapter 11, uh, at the raising of Lazarus, uh, Jesus showed his power there, because Lazarus has been dead in the grave now for four days. He's starting to actually decay bodily. Jesus calls him out, and everybody is stunned at this. So Jesus is able to do this, to a person who's died, who's been buried, who's actually in a state of decay, he proves later he himself is able to do this. And so from his teaching, from his action, we see that he assures everyone's resurrection who puts their faith and trust in him. The Apostle Paul also even more clearly developed this teaching in his writings, And we could go to a lot of passages, but let's go to two that are very familiar to us. One is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I hope that you know by now that this is the great resurrection chapter of the Bible. Everything in this is directed to resurrection. Now we're going to go to the concluding part of it in chapter 50. And uh, this is something I read at almost every uh, funeral service that I conduct. In verse 50, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 
nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is the moment we ought to be looking forward to. If we die before this exchange occurs, we're, we're going to be waiting for it to happen in heaven. Uh, we're not going to be there in our glorified bodies yet. It seems to indicate this is when everyone receives their glorified body. So perhaps our souls uh, will be robed in the shining white garments of the righteousness of the saints until that day occurs. But at that instant, all of us will be changed, will be totally perfected, will have a, a, a body that's similar to the Lord Jesus Christ, a glorified body in which we will dwell for all of eternity and serve Christ in whatever way he deems for us. So that's the effect uh, of death being totally removed from the believer. Now there's another passage, and uh, it supports this. It's in First Thessalonians 4. We're not going to go there, uh, but you should be uh, familiar with that. It's a passage we call the rapture of the church. And again, those who are dead precede us who are alive. They'll be caught up to be with the Lord. Then we'll follow them and we'll be with the Lord forever from that point. And really, uh, we ought to be longing for that day. We ought to be thinking toward that day. Uh, to have a body no longer racked with the ages of time, the illnesses that plague us, the temptations to sin, the lust of the flesh, the pull of the world, all that's going to be gone when that day occurs. So we ought to be looking forward to when we're perfected and uh, rejoined with a body similar to that of the Lord Jesus who was raised up. And we're assured that that will happen because he was raised up. Now the last thing I want you to see is that Christ's resurrection also assures his return. So that's perhaps the uh, the best outcome of all when we're all going to be with him in glory. So the hope of this return resonates throughout the whole New Testament. And I just want to look at uh, two passages that bears this out. If you go back to Matthew's Gospel and uh, the 24th chapter, Jesus is talking about uh, future destruction, the time of the tribulation, and his uh, return at that point. And I'm going to read from uh, chapter 24, verse 29, through verse 31. And verse 29 says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then... 
the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And that's when the whole church is going to be collected together. At that moment, Christ returns to set up his heavenly kingdom. Now, we have that further defined back in Revelation. And I want to just touch on two passages here. In the beginning of the book and towards the end of the book as well. All right. His, uh, the Lord's uh, coming... Well, we won't, we won't go to the coming yet, but in chapter 1, we find that the Apostle John is given a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, his uh, revealing uh, as he comes, as he appears, as he takes control of all things in the world. And notice that <clears throat> he is seeing the risen Lord, okay? And uh, in verse uh, 5 of chapter 1, the message uh, is from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. So Jesus being the firstborn of the dead means that he's the first person born into or, or we should say resurrected into a glorious body. Some other people in the Old Testament were raised back into physical life, Jesus was raised up into a glorious body for eternal life. And this is who he sees in that first chapter. We also see this alluded to in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So he's speaking there as the resurrected Lord. And then also in verses 17 and 18, uh, the Lord Jesus is speaking. I uh, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. So again, uh, these are uh, outcomes of the resurrection. Jesus himself is speaking here as the raised Lord. Now, his coming is described in chapter 19. And I just want to read this section to you. Uh, this is something, again, we look forward to. We'll be involved in this in some way. <clears throat> Chapter 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judged and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that knew what no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of lords. So what applications then can we draw from these outcomes of Christ's resurrection? 
Well, first of all, we can trust all the claims and the promises of Christ because they came true as he was raised from the dead. He proved everything that he said about himself. He suffered, he died, he was raised, he was able to give eternal life to those who trust him. And if you turn from your sin today and you trust him as your savior, then you too will be saved. If you've received the gospel message, then you have a responsibility to share it with others. You might not be an apostle or a preacher or an evangelist, but we all have a testimony of how we came to know Christ as our Savior. We understand what the gospel is. We have received it. And now we need to seek God's help and his guidance in sharing that with others, as well as living the way that he says we ought to live so as not to uh, uh, bring uh, or dis- disparage the gospel message. So the gospel is to be carried on by those who have received it. Then are you living under the power and the control of the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent and now puts in us when we believe? <clears throat> uh, he abides in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. He's there to help you understand the scriptures and to apply those scriptures to your life. He gives you the strength to obey God's word. He gifts you to serve in his church. So are you submitting to the power of the Holy Spirit God has given you? Are you serving the Lord Jesus through his power? And finally, are you anticipating the day of your bodily resurrection at Christ's return? What a comfort it is to know that even though our earthly body is passing away, that God has a new glorious body prepared for us. And in that body, we will serve our king in a new heaven and a new earth for all of eternity. And uh, one just wonders how uh, great that's going to be and what he has planned for us in that realm. That promise, again, is bound up in Christ's resurrection and his glorious return. He commands, his command for us is to be patiently waiting for that return and endure the trials of life until it comes or until he takes us home. So we're to be eagerly waiting and watching uh, for that event to take place. Nothing else. Don't have to watch for the end of Christ. We're supposedly watching for Christ. So all these glorious outcomes are ours through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And I trust that you will rejoice in them, be strengthened by them, and make them central to your life today and every day. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're again grateful for all of these truths based upon the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful, Lord, for the day that you... Uh, Let us to believe in the Lord Jesus, to receive him as our Savior. Lord, help us to hold these truths dear and close to us concerning the outcomes of his resurrection. Lord, we can trust every promise in the Bible because you always keep your word. Uh, We can share these truths with others. Uh, We can abide in them ourselves as we obey the leading and guidance of your Holy Spirit. And we can look forward to the day, even if we uh, have to go through the valley of the shadow of death, to the time that you will raise us up 
and cause us to reign with you from on high. Bless our hearts with these things today, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.